only a uh, Puritan would be able to get the words efficacious and banishment in the same sentence, make it flow. I don't know how those are big words say a lot. Well, still back to this topic or still at this topic of the atonement. I hope I'm not boring you with it. I want to try to give all of this, um, as much of this as I can in and stay here as long as necessary to try to expound it as much as possible. The doctrine is so profound and uh, multifaceted and it touches every, really every bit of every other doctrine. And so um, it's hard to just breeze through it. And I don't want to just throw out some stuff and, and um, move to the next thing. So and I know Isaiah 53 keeps coming in, and that's kind of uh, what I've based this on today. But Isaiah 53 is such a beautiful passage, and I hope you can see from reading it, it's clearly a prophetic passage fulfilled completely in Jesus Christ. Everything that's said there, uh, the chastisement of us all was upon him. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and he was crushed. And it pleased the Lord to crush him. And um, man, that that uh, sums up the atonement. It pleased the Lord to crush his son uh, for his people. And so today, I want to continue or try to maybe answer the questions that I posed to you last week, which were these. But for which sinners did Christ stand in the place of? If we believe he did indeed stand in the place of sinners and he substituted then for which sinners did he substitute? And is it possible that he substituted for every sinner who ever lived and ever would live? And then the very difficult one, is it possible that Christ substituted for those who are in hell? So was the design of the atonement, well, here's some other questions. I think I asked these last week. Was the design of the atonement to save men or make them savable? I think that's a big deal. We got to answer that question. So was the design of the atonement to make salvation a reality or just a possibility? Could it fail? I guess is a good way to put it. And the answers to these questions now have been grappled over at least since the 4th century and the 5th centuries. Some guys that we actually mentioned in um, Sunday school this morning, you may have heard of, you may not have. One was named Augustine or Augustine, depending on where you're from, you pronounce that differently. Uh, Augustine of Hippo was um, one of the great church fathers, one of the great church theologians, and he was from northern Africa. He taught some things we'll talk about, very important about this subject. But there was a man named Pelagius who didn't like what Augustine had to say about the atonement and God in general. Pelagius was a British monk from the same period. Augustine basically championed the belief that the work of salvation in humans was totally a work from God, from beginning to end, from start to finish. Now, they believed a lot of other things, but this, we're just talking about specifically our subject. Pelagius, on the other hand, believed that salvation was a human choice. In fact, 
Pelagius did not believe that the fall of Adam affected all of humanity. He believed that the fall of Adam affected Adam. And every human born since Adam had the same choices and abilities that Adam had, including the ability to choose to obey God or to choose to disobey God. Augustine, on the other hand, believed that mankind was so depraved and stricken by the fall that God had to act on man and in man to give him faith and the ability to believe. In fact, one of the prayers Augustine prayed that so angered Pelagius and started all this was Augustine prayed something like, God, make us, um, uh, uh, give us, a, um, help us to follow your will and give us the desire and the ability to even do your will. In, in other words, he kind of prayed, God, I pray that you would answer our prayers and uh, show us that um, you do answer prayer and everything that happens is because of you, even our ability to believe and uh, follow you comes from you. And Pelagius didn't like that. He thought that that was um, putting on God something that he didn't deserve. Augustine believed that God had to act, give man faith, and the ability to believe. Now, the church condemned Pelagius and his views, especially of the fall, uh, in the early four, 400s at a council called the Council of Ephesus, if you're interested, look that up. But not long after that, a view sort of midway between those two was adopted by men known as semi-Pelagianism, which suggests sort of a cooperation between God and man. So it wasn't all God, but it wasn't uh, only man. Sort of, uh, some people would refer to it as a synergistic work, two parties coming together to make salvation possible and happen. In other words, God has done his part enabling men to now do their part. That's sort of a way to describe semi-Pelagianism. So they would say, even though the fall affected man, man was left, and this is their words, with an island of righteousness still capable of choosing correctly. So every human has this little island residing somewhere in them, an island of righteousness to help them decide correctly or give them the ability to choose correctly. Apart from grace, apart from God, just man choosing independently of God because that's the way he made them. This too was condemned by the church at large in the 500s, the Council of Orange, now, pretty much, semi-Pelagianism is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church today. If you are familiar at all with Roman Catholic doctrine, you'll know that that's the plan of salvation. God gives grace, and by that grace, man is now able to do his part and then be saved. Unfortunately, that's the unofficial teaching of most evangelical churches today, too. It's most of, mostly what we have been brought up believing. I had, in fact, a young man who's a friend of mine who is a Baptist, been in a Baptist church all his life. Not very long ago, we were having this very discussion, and he said to me, finally, at the end, when there were, he couldn't really discount what I was saying about the atonement, he finally said, I just believe God has done his part, and it's up to us to do our part, and then we'll be saved. And I said, well, you know, that's that makes you a Catholic. <laughs> that's not... 
that's when the conversation ended. But I point that out in all honesty because most of us have been affected and influenced by this teaching. And that doesn't make you bad. And I'm not throwing rocks at you. Um, I've done some of this teaching myself before I realized what I was saying. This and the Arminian teaching, which is another controversy that came along later um, after the Reformation, that Christ died a universal death for every human and that he died for the sins of every human. It does something to us in our minds, in our little finite minds, I believe. It helps us put salvation in terms that we can remove any blame of the condemned and the reprobate from God. We don't like the idea of thinking that God in any way has anything to do with the reprobate, being reprobate, right? I mean, let's just be honest. That's where we all are at. I don't want to think that the God I've been taught is good and does right could have anything to do with somebody being condemned and not being saved. And I, and I think that the proper way to think of that is not in those terms, and we'll get to that eventually. But for now, I think it's important to realize that that's what we're doing. We, we don't want to make God culpable, uh, culpable totally for man's salvation because then that makes him culpable to man's condemnation. So we kind of got to find a balance somewhere. Well, God is, he is the Lord of salvation, but he's done everything possible to make man saved. And now man has to do something. And if man rejects it, it's man's fault. And I do believe that the Bible says, it teaches us that man is responsible for his own condemnation. Because he comes here that way. And he doesn't act in faith toward Christ. And we can argue the reasons for that. But. The Bible is very clear that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. I mean, it couldn't be put in much more clear terms. He's the author and the finisher of it. So we don't play a part in that. The Bible says that one who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And as so many in the Bible, Bible proclaim, salvation is of the Lord. Totally a work of the Godhead. Totally. A.W. Pink said it this way, all the affairs of the elect were settled by mutual consent of all the persons of the deity. In other words, the Trinity was totally involved in all the affairs of the elect. The Father made the choice of the elect, Ephesians 1. The Son accepted the choice, John 17. And the Spirit recorded it in the Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation 13. So the Father decreed salvation. The Son consented to the purchase of it. And the Spirit placed himself to communication. I thought that was a good way to sum it up. The Trinity totally involved in the process. The entire thing from beginning to end. So we have to answer our questions from this basis. Of salvation being totally a work of God from start to finish. Leaving no room for boasting. No room for the works of men. Not some synergistic combination of God plus man. It can't be that. There's no way the Bible can be consistent saying there's nothing to boast of except Christ and him crucified and still have us play a part in salvation. It, they are mutually exclusive. You can't make that work together. 
I hope that you, along with me, believe that the Bible teaches every human is a sinner by nature and by choice. In other words, we sin because we are sinners. You do. I, I know I've told you this many times. Those of you who are parents, you didn't have to teach your child to be bad. It, they came here with that built in them. They came here. When they didn't get what they want, they cried. And sometimes that don't end for a long, long time, right? Now, Pelagius, for example, on the other end, he would say that's not true, that when we sin, we become sinners. We don't sin because we are. We become a sinner once we sin. He believes but that, that infants came here totally innocent, totally neutral, just if that's the right word, just like Adam and Eve. And then they go astray, not from the womb, which the Bible says, but they go astray once they sin. But we, and we've talked about this before, we have sinned against an infinite God, and we have no way of paying it back. We're in serious debt to the justice of God. Something that R.C. Sproul referred to as cosmic treason. We have committed sin against an eternal God. So God deemed it that Jesus would stand in the place of sinners because there's no way sinners could stand for themselves. And so Jesus is the substitute for sinners that will satisfy the justice of God. So then the question, well, then which sinners did Jesus substitute for? Well, we have discussed already how the Old Testament sacrifices were made indeed for those who brought the offerings. You didn't bring your offering to the priest and then he offered it for some guy down the road. He offered it for the one who brought it. The Day of Atonement. The sacrifice was made for the sins of Israel. Not the whole world indiscriminately, but specifically for Israel. Those who were called Israel. And these shadows and types we looked at, they pointed forward to Christ clearly. The New Testament highlights this for us. Christ, who would suffer and be our substitute for the sins of a certain people, the true Israel, a specific people known as the elect of God, the church, not the whole world without exception, but the elect of God without distinction. Indiscriminately, from the world, God chooses specifically his people. From every tribe and tongue and nation, a particular people from the whole has been chosen. Jesus said, in fact, I have sheep not of this fold. I'll bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock. Christ took the place of his sheep. Jesus said, in fact, I lay down my life for the sheep. The sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They don't follow me to become sheep. They follow me because they are sheep. So his substitution satisfied the justice and the righteousness of the Father because the sin of God's people was imputed or counted on to Christ. And we haven't really talked about this, but I know I could spend an entire sermon or many on just this idea of imputation, where God took what we did and imputed that to Christ or counted it toward Christ and he took the righteousness of Christ and counted it toward us, imputed it to us. That was the picture we saw of the Day of Atonement and the priest putting his hands on 
the goat that would be sacrificed and the scapegoat, there was something being imputed, something being counted toward. In Christ, when we read Psalm, I mean, Isaiah 53, that beautiful passage, that's what happened when God put on him the iniquity of us all. He imputed that to Christ so that what the New Testament says later could be true, but he counted his righteousness to us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might be made the righteousness of Christ in him. It's a beautiful picture. The, the, the swap that happened. The imputation. The father received the substitute and was reconciled, reconciled to sinners as a result. And now sinners are redeemed out of their state of alienation and cosmic debt and thereby given salvation. There's absolutely no room for human will in there. We read John chapter 1. Did you hear? Did you hear what John said about Jesus? He gave the power to become sons to all who believe, even those who received him, those who believed in his name, not according to the will of the flesh, not according to the will of man, but according to the will of God. And I know you say, yeah, but I chose Christ. Yes, you did. You willingly chose him. After God fixed your will, and after he came down upon you and he opened your eyes through the preaching of the gospel and he gave you faith to believe by grace you were saved through faith and that was not of yourselves. There's simply no room for the human will because God did it all for those who he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is in Romans 8 beginning in verse 28. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those who he called, he justified. Those who he justified, he glorified. There's no, there's nowhere in there to stop and say, and then man did something. And then God, as a result, did. No, God did, God did, God did, and he still does. So since Christ's sacrifice was a substitute and a satisfaction, only he could have stood in the place of those who would be saved. Or else the satisfaction and the substitution would be meaningless. Have you ever thought about that? God had to be satisfied. And it had to be complete. Or else there, there would suggest some kind of evil division within God. Where he is fully satisfied. But still somehow punishes those to whom he no longer was at enmity with. So if it was satisfied, it's done. That's why Jesus said it's finished. And we sing in that song. Since it's been completed and satisfied and fulfilled and perfected in Christ, then there's no way I could be punished for it because Christ was punished for me. And it, my sin was imputed to him. So I think it's fair to answer the question, did Christ substitute for every sinner that's ever been born? There's no way he could have or else the satisfaction would be applied to them. And you can't suggest some kind of duality in God where he says, I'm satisfied, but I'm still going to punish you. If he's satisfied, he's satisfied. Because that's what completion means, right? That's what satisfaction means. <laughs> That's what it means for it to be over. It's finished. It's complete. 
Can't be anything left to do. I try to think of some carnal, worldly analogy that would help. I guess something like if you paid for, if you're paying for some work to be done, let's say you're paying for your car to be finished, you write a check up front. Here's the full payment you said it's going to cost. Call me when it's finished. They call you, you show up, you say, great, I'm here to pick up my car. Is it finished? And they say, yeah. Well, everything except the back fender, the rear left fender. Well, is it finished? Yeah, but just not the fender. Well, then it's not finished. If the fender is finished, call me and I'll come back and get it when it's finished. In the same way, when Jesus said it's finished and God's wrath has been satisfied, there can't be a caveat. It's satisfied and finished, but you got to do this. It's more like because it is finished and satisfied, you will do this. That's sort of the teaching of Scripture. So this might sort of be the answer to two of the questions. Christ could not substitute for every sinner because if he would have done so for those who are in hell and will be in hell, then that would suggest also some kind of evil dualism within God. But it also would suggest that somehow Jesus failed. There are people in hell who Jesus died for and satisfied for, but not completely. Somewhere he messed up. He didn't do enough. So at the same time, he was the perfect sacrifice and satisfaction for some, but not for others, because he failed to do enough for some. Which, of course, brings us back to the idea of human will and effort. You can't really say along with Pelagius, God did his part, now do yours, because God's part was complete and perfect. You can't say both it was complete and perfect and it's finished, but now all you have to do is da-da-da-da-da. It's just an... It's a logical inconsistency. Is it complete or perfect or not? And so our final question, did Christ die to save sinners or make sinners savable? Seems to already have an answer. If he died to make men savable, to make something possible, then you might be a semi-plagian at best or confused at worst. Confused mostly about the design and the intent of the atonement. Because if Christ died for possibilities, there's a possibility that all will fail. There would be a possibility that none would be saved. You see, if you land on the other side of that, then you have to be where Pelagius was and have to believe there were actually people alive, even in his day, that had perfectly obeyed the will of God and never sinned. He believed there was a large portion of Jewish people and a small remnant of Gentiles who had lived a perfect life and were going to be saved because they had completed perfect obedience to the law. But if you're going to believe one side of that, you have to believe the other. If it's possible that Christ could die for somebody and they still be lost, then it has to be possible that well, then some just didn't need it to begin with. And it brings us back to this. What do you believe about the fall? Did man totally fall in Adam or does he really have an island of righteousness left within him? Is there some kind of light of goodness in man that is possible for him to make a good decision like be saved? Well, I think Ephesians 2.1 is very clear. It says that before Christ, we were dead in our sin and trespasses. 
And the word dead means what we would mean dead. Dead means you ain't coming back. You know, I laugh sometimes because all of us who are not medical, and I'm, I'm somebody who's not medical, we might say things like, you might hear somebody say, I was dead for three minutes on the table. I was dead for 40 seconds. But the medical professionals, they won't say they were dead. They'll say, we didn't get a heartbeat or we didn't have a pulse for this long, but we got a pulse later. I don't know if I've ever heard a doctor say, he was dead for five minutes and we brought him back. But the doctor will say something that's correct, more correct. We didn't have a pulse. We got a pulse back. They weren't breathing. We got their breathing back. Because when the doctor says he's dead, that's, there ain't going to be anything after that. They're dead. They're not coming back. And that's what this means. The Bible says we were dead, much like the picture of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel. The only hope for those bones to be put back together was for a man to prophesy and the Spirit of God through the Word of God being prophesied would put those bones back together. So if all we're doing in preaching the gospel is trying to convince men and women that Jesus is the best option, it's better to choose him than to choose hell, it's no wonder that our preaching has become so man-centered and carnal and worthless and godless. And there are total sermons that barely mention God or Jesus because we are trying to get people to make decisions. But when you believe preaching the gospel to be preaching to dead people, dead souls, a valley of bones, then you'll desperately try to preach God, His holiness, His righteousness, his attributes, because you're expecting nothing more than a divine miracle of divine proportions for a dead person to get up and be alive. To rise up and to respond. To rise up and follow Jesus. Man, we ought to be amazed when God awakens dead sinners to life. Should we rejoice? Absolutely. But we ought to be in awe. And never stop being in awe that when we are in the presence of that decree which is older than the world itself, when it unfolds before our eyes, man, we ought to be still shocked. That doesn't suggest we're, we didn't believe God. But we just ought to be amazed that God's bringing dead people to life. And I think that will affect our preaching. Why would, we pre why would we spend more time trying to convince people who God is rather than convince them about a decision to make? Because only God will really bring you from death to life. When everyone whose name has been recorded in the Lamb's book of life hears the voice of the shepherd and turns from this world in their selves and follows the shepherd's voice, man, that's a miracle of miracles. Every bit as fantastic as the sea parting, a bush burning and not being consumed, the Lord walking on the water, the blind seeing, the lame walking, these are all fantastic and amazing. And the dead being resurrected. Mind-blowing. It's a miracle. It's miraculous. Man, that's why we, hey, we, we teach who God is with full expectation he will awaken his people. When the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, they will follow him. And it's as simple as that. It's not going to be like the Charles Finney's of the world and decide that nah, it's just about human reason. If we can convince people this is a better decision, they'll certainly make it. They might make your decision, but they're still going to be lost and dead until they hear the voice of the 
shepherd. Those are my answers to those questions. I don't know if they're yours, but I hope they are. I hope you'll search and see. I know these are difficult things to grasp. And I'm really not poking fun or making fun if you don't believe that way. Because I didn't believe that way either at one time. And these are these are um, these are divine principles that you can only see and understand through faith. So I trust God to give you eyes to see that. Let's pray. Father, we, we love you and we thank you for your word. We know that it is true. We know that it is truth. We know that it will accomplish exactly what you send it forth to do. So even today, I pray that you're stirring the hearts of your people and also stirring the hearts of those who may still be dead, that their bones are rumbling and all their joints are about to be put back together. And they're going to rise up and follow Christ. And we trust you to do such a divine miracle among your people. And then God, give us hearts of of joy and rejoicing. And then just help us to continue to look toward you, toward the gospel, to to continue to awaken people. And uh, give us faith to believe. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.